All right, everybody. Hey, real quick, before we get going, there is cake where the coffee machine is. Apparently, Preston had a birthday, so he's three now, correct? Three. He was one of our first COVID babies, and uh, so he had a he had a birthday. If you'd like some cake, uh, it was it a Nicole special. Uh, Nicole, our resident pastry chef, made it, so I would suggest getting over there and taking part if you like cake. And uh, there you go. I never understood, by the way, that, you know, people would say it's like having your cake and eating it too. I never understood that because growing up, I couldn't imagine, like, it never even occurred to me that nobody would eat, somebody would not want to eat their cake. Like, you eat cake, that's what you do. And then Danielle made a nice looking cake, and I was like, oh, it's a shame to have to cut that. And I <laughs> realized what the, it meant. Um, so, yes. All right, let's open up our Bibles to Isaiah 50. Isaiah 50. Also, there's a lot of movies I never saw growing up, and when I went to a Christian university, I did not understand probably half to three-quarters of the jokes that were made because I never saw the movies that they saw. Um, one of those, our kids were watching Anne of Green Gables, I've never seen any of those. Um, what's the other one, Danielle, that I never saw? I, well, I never saw that either. Um, <laughs> none of them. What, what was the comedy that everybody laughs at? The Princess Bride. I, I, I don't get if you If you give me a Princess Bride joke, it's straight over. I, I, I don't get it. So, um, yeah. Bed knobs and broomsticks. No. Mm -mm. So, yeah. So, all right. On to Isaiah 50, where there are no jokes. Okay. <laughs> all right. Isaiah 50. We've been working our way through Isaiah 40 through 66. It's a pretty lengthy section of scripture. We've been trying to take it a little in a little bit bigger chunks so that we can work through it in a timely manner, but we've noted before that uh, the book of Isaiah divides into three sections. The divisions are not um, of the same size. Uh, the first and the third divisions are comparable. They're both pretty large, but then the middle section is a little three-chapter interlude that serves as a hinge. Um, if you look at a wall and you look at a door, you go, okay, well, I can see how the wall and the door are similar in size. Uh, the hinge connects them. And that's what those three small chapters do. And by comparison, they're really small, but they do connect the two parts. And so um, we are in the third of those sections. And this is a section where God is dealing primarily with Israel's future. He's dealing primarily with Israel's future. Um, just to kind of refresh ourselves, when Isaiah 50 was written, there was a king ruling whose name was Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a really good king, and he was effective too. It's not always the case when you get a hereditary dynasty, you know, the oldest son rules. Uh, there's a bit of 
luck of the draw involved with that. Sometimes you get really capable people, and sometimes you get not so capable people. But Hezekiah was both capable and godly. The one besetting sin that he had was his pride, and it jumped up and bit him on occasion. However, for a man whose besetting sin was his pride, his remarkable jewel was that when confronted for his pride, he quickly repented. Um, He was not a man who held on to his pride, though it would flare up. When it did, he would let it go and give it over to the Lord. So this, this is being written in a time of immense prosperity in the nation. It was, in fact, kind of hard to see that tough times were coming. The nation had just chased off their biggest enemy, and the next big enemy that was going to be coming at them was a long way off into the future. And so God is writing them in a time of prosperity, and he's telling them, times won't always be good. You are going to come under my hand, and when you do, I'll be there for you. When you do come under trial, you're going to be tempted to say some silly things. When you come under my hand of judgment, you're going to accuse me of being unfaithful. But I want you to know that I'm not. And that's where we're at right here in Isaiah 50. The people have made accusations, or historically speaking, God is telling them, you're going to make accusations of me. What are those accusations? Well, let's pick up our reading in verse 1. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Let's stop right there. It's clear that the people are accusing God of divorcing them. It's clear that the people of God are accusing the people of God are accusing him of selling them into slavery. When difficult times come, you are going to take your hands and you're going to point the finger at me, God says. You're going to accuse me of divorcing you, and you're going to accuse me of selling you into creditors. Now, there's a harsh reality here. God will send them away. And God will give them temporarily to creditors. The accusation is not that God has divorced them or that God has sold them to creditors. The accusation is that God has done so capriciously. That God has done so for no reason at all. You sent me away, you divorced me, without cause. You sold me because you don't care. You sold me because you look down on me. You sold me because of your laziness or avarice or whatever it might be. And God says, no, 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 no. Verse 2, I'm sorry, uh, the end of verse 1. Behold, 
It was for your iniquities you were sold. And for your transgressions, your mother was sent away. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? Okay, again, let's stop there. How many of you have been reading through, uh, for, for this year's Bible reading, you've been doing the Bible through the year? Okay, a few of us, good, good. If you're on the, we, we offered one of three plans, New Testament, um, Bible through the year chronologically, or Bible uh, through the year more Old and New Testament. And if you're on that one, which is the one I'm doing, the Bible through the year with a little bit of Old and a little bit of New every day, then what you've realized is we, we've come to the book of Deuteronomy, and God is making a covenant with his people. Now, we don't use that term covenant very often. But what if I were to say this? What if I were to say this? Um, you signed a contract. You signed a contract with the bank for your house. Okay. And what were the terms of the contract? Well, here were the terms. The bank lent you, let's use a round number, the bank lent you $100,000 for a home, it paid for your home, and you, its terms were, we'll pay for the home, and we'll manage its taxes and its insurance, we'll pay all that for you, and in exchange, you will pay us back that money with interest, and you'll do it every month, and if you're 30 days late on a payment, that's a strike. And if you're 60 days late, we have the right to come and take the home back from you until the day it's paid. Here are the terms. We pay what you don't have on hand immediately, and we manage some of the stuff for you, and in exchange, you'll pay us back with extra. They paid, they upheld their end of the bargain, and now it's your turn to uphold your end of the bargain. That's what the book of Deuteronomy is. It's a contract. God says, my end of the bargain is that I will protect you. I will build your nation up. I will help you. I will be your God and you will be my people and you will dwell securely in the land. And your end of the bargain is that you will obey my words. And if you disobey, I've given you provision to receive forgiveness and atonement and redemption. But if you persist in your disobedience, if you break the terms of our contract, I will pour out upon you these curses. And one of those curses is that you'll be sent away and deported. So we come back here to Isaiah 50. The people are saying, God, you sent us away for no reason at all. You divorced us for no reason. You sold us for no reason. And God says, no, no. You broke the terms of our contract. 
It was your actions that caused me to do it. Now, I have a question for you. Let's, let's keep with our banking illustration for just a minute. Wouldn't it be nice if the bank every once and again forgave uh, a, a, a borrower that was late and just wrote it off? Wouldn't that be nice? Is that what you would expect from the bank? <laughs> no. A bank is a for-profit venture. What if, what if you worked for the bank? What if your retirement was bound up in the bank? What if your children's college fund depended on the bank's success? What if your health care and your well-being, the food on your table, depended on people paying their mortgages on time? How would you feel then if in mass a bunch of people stopped paying? Would you take so kindly to that? Or would you hold up a contract and say, no, look, you made promises. You failed to uphold your end of the bargain, and now it's time for us to repossess that property so I can put food on my table. Okay. At some point, you expect the bank to do what it says it will do. You promise to do what you would do, and it promises to do what it will do, and when there's a breach of contract, there's consequences. What God is saying is, you forced my hand. You put me in a position where I had to judge, because the nations will look on, and they will say, God doesn't keep his word. You violated our covenant, you violated our contract, and now the other nations are looking on and they're saying, is this a God who really cares? Is this a God who keeps his word? You forced me to it. I had to send you away. And so, God says, listen, listen, verse 2, as you were rebelling... I sent people to warn you that I was going to uphold my end of the bargain. But you weren't listening. Nobody was there to hear. Why, when I came, was there no man? Why, when I called, was there no one to answer? I sent you warnings, and you didn't listen. And now you're bellyaching and saying false things about me. I have sent you away, and I will bring you back. And here's another accusation that people are making of God. Okay? Listen to the different accusations people are making. God sent us away for no reason. Okay, That's the first accusation. God says, no, we had a contract. You knew the rules. You broke the contract. I warned you. Nobody listened, so I sent you away. Here's the second complaint. God sent us away, and now he's incapable. He can't work, he won't work. God's, it, it, the first accusation was that God was willful in his sending the people away. And the second accusation, which doesn't make much sense, but it's there anyway, is that God is incapable. Okay, God is incapable. God says, is my hand shortened? 
that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. Their fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. The first thing that God does is he reminds them of an event, of, of uh, the wilderness wanderings. Do you remember? Th- you might remember this event. God says that the people are, are wandering about in the wilderness, and they're so mad that all they have to eat every morning is manna. The people didn't have food, so every morning, except on Saturdays, they got to see a miracle. But even on Saturdays, they got to see a miracle because they were supposed to gather twice as much as they needed on Friday. Every other day, if they kept it overnight, the manna would stink. But on Saturday, it would hold. Next day, Sunday, manna would reappear. They got to see a miracle every day. And the people said, all we have to eat is this stinking manna. We want some meat. Now, I'm going to admit, I could probably sympathize with that just a little bit. I like meat, okay? But the people were complaining about it. Moses called the elders, and they were talking to the Lord about it, and the Lord spoke to Moses in the hearing of the elders, and he said, you are going to have meat for the entire nation. Now, keep in mind, if we do the math and we... Assume they all had children that weren't counted and the wives. What we're talking about, about 1.2 million people. Okay? And he says, you're going to eat meat. You're going to eat so much meat for 30 days that it's going to come out your nose. And Moses, Moses suddenly becomes a rationalist. And he says, God, come over here for a second. Let's have a private conversation. He says, God, even if we slaughtered every animal we have, it wouldn't be sufficient meat to feed everybody for that long such that it would come out of our noses. In other words, Moses is telling God, God, that's a pretty big promise. Are you sure? Does anybody know what God asked Moses next? Anybody know? He says, is my hand cut short? And that's what Isaiah is alluding to here. Now, just so you know, a ring of quail flew into the camp. And it was a wide ring of quail. (laughs) It says it was a day's journey wide. Anybody know what a day's journey typically was? 10 to 12 miles. Okay? So just outside the camp, for 10 to 12 miles in any direction you could walk, there was quail. It says the people, the least of them, collected 10 homers. We don't we're guessing at what a homer is, but think the size of my trailer. Okay, how many of you know what my trailer looks like? Okay, many of you have borrowed it, in fact. Some of you have broken the lights off of the back of it, okay? 
but the people here are always very quick to replace the lights once they've been broken. I've never replaced any of the lights. One, actually, one time I did have to replace lights. I saw that the lights were broken, and I went and I looked and investigated, and sure enough, the, the reflectors are on the ground beneath the trailer. And I was like, huh. So I went inside, and I gathered the children, and I stood them up from tallest to shortest, and I explained what I saw. And they all immediately pointed at the culprit, <laughs> who had decided to take his hammer and smash the back of the lights out. And it was Schaefer. <laughs> so when Schaefer likes to get tools, he likes to get tools. But when Schaefer says he wants a tool, what he actually means is, I want a hammer. Okay, the man has like 25 hammers. <laughs> Maybe not 25, but no exaggeration, he has at least 10 or 12 hammers. And so I made him go, and, and they're all different types of hammers. He doesn't even know what they're all for. He just loves hammers, okay? And when you're a hammer, everything's a nail. So <laughs> um, I had him go collect all his hammers, and he brought them to me in his arms like this, and I confiscated his hammers for a few weeks. It, something inside of the boy died as he handed his hammers over. Well, all right, where was I going with that? Okay, something about Isaiah. Homer, yeah, so think, think fill the size of my trailer. Um, that's, that's how many Homers there were. And, and the people ate so much meat that it came out of their noses. What, was God's hand cut short? Was God somehow handicapped? No. And then... God tacks something on. He says, I, I, there's no sea too wet. There's no light too bright. I control nature. I control the solar system. I control every last detail of everything. And when I say that I will save you, I will save you. Now the question then becomes... What, what question would you most naturally ask? I'm going to send you away because of your adultery. It's going to be hopeless, but I will save you. What, what would be the first question you would then ask? When or what? He already said when. How? How are you going to do that? Maybe it, it will be my first question. Maybe not some of yours, apparently. That's okay. Well, Isaiah asks how. Verse 4. A person is coming to do the delivering. But he is not going to deliver the way that you would think he will. It says right here, The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear those, to hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. Let's stop there. Stop there. Don't read ahead. There's a person coming who listens. Who listens most specifically to God. And he listens to the voice of his people. He listens to Bible instruction. He listens to the 
toils and hardships of those who are around him. He listens to the voice of God. And we're told here that he's also a preacher. His preaching is informed by his listening. He's not simply listen, He's not simply proclaiming something into a vacuum. He's hearing what the struggles are of the people first. He's hearing the instruction of the Lord first. And then he starts talking. But when he talks, he stands in the prophetic line of people who are abused for their speech. Not a prophet in the Old Testament lived without receiving this abuse. And this prophet, who hears first, says this, verse 6, I give my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. These punishments, a back that is flogged, a beard that is plucked out, a face that is spit upon, are not just physical punishments. These are punishments that are intended to insult the one who receives them. These, this is the punishment of a criminal, the punishment of a man whose the leaders decide he needs public humiliation. The being spit upon, this is given for a man who refuses to raise up his brother's house. Verse 7, but the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Where is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. This person is coming. He will hear. He will preach. He will receive awful condemnation and humiliation. Yet... Even though he knows it's coming, he sets his face like the hardest known substance that they understood, a flint. He knows this is God's will, and he knows that God won't abandon him. And he marches, we're told in the book of Mark, up that hill from Jericho to Jerusalem, just so he could be spit on just so his beard could be pulled out, just so his back could be laid open by the flogging he received. And through that humiliation, he's honored. And one day, he will say to his own people, can you find fault in me? And they will say, no. One day God will completely and totally and utterly vindicate him. How often have you heard people say, I can't, I can't worship a God who would treat his people thus. I can't worship, I can't worship a, a savior, a, a, a king who would judge people. No, those, those voices one day will be silenced. And they will say, you 
You were right. You are right. And you bore the brunt of our sin. Verse 10. Isaiah's going to sort of wrap this up. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Okay, remember we're talking about servant songs. This is what the servant has been saying. I'm going to deliver you by my own, by the abuse and humiliation of my own body. And so now Isaiah comes back out of it, and he says, everybody who hears this, who will fear and obey the voice of the Lord? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. You need to circle Trust in the name of his Lord and rely on his God and circle that and write a cross-reference. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6. Many of you have this verse memorized. Many of you have this verse memorized. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. The word rely, trust here, it's, it's actually, the idea is to put your weight on. There's a, a foundation and you're, you're, you're putting all the weight of you on it and believing it to be reliable. There's two ways, there's two ways in life that you can lean on. My way and God's way. Lean all your weight on God's way. And if you think I'm making a false uh, division here, when I say there are only two ways, your way or God's way, and God's way will have salvation and help, well, look what he says next. God makes this own category. He says, now let me talk to all the people that are going to lean on your way. Verse 11, Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, and walk by the light of your fire and by the torches you have kindled. Here's what God is saying. All of you are in darkness, and some of you are going to try to get out of that darkness with your own light. I have light over here, and you're going to disregard my light, and you're going to pick up your own light. You're going to make your own torch, and you're going to try to go your own direction. But here's what I'm telling you. If you go that direction... This you will have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. This you will have from my hand. You will lie down in torment. If you try to go your own way, there is death and destruction and eternal condemnation at the end of that path. And in a moment, that might feel really good and autonomous and you and authentic and so on and so forth. God is saying, don't go that way. Don't go that way. Don't go your way. Don't lean on your own understanding. But if you trust in me and you rely on me, I will redeem, I will restore, I will save. And the Lord Jesus Christ promises, the one who had his beard plucked out, the one who had his back flogged, the one who was spit on for us, he promises eternal salvation and reward and generosity and blessing. 
But all those who trust in the Lord revel in his goodness and kindness. God is being very clear with his people here. You've got two paths you can go on. One on your own understanding that blames me for all the bad stuff happening to you. Or you can lean on your own, you can lean on my word and trust in me. My hand is not cut short to save you. And I will draw you back. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray and we'll get ready for worship. Father, thank you that you've spoken so clearly to us and thank you that your grace is so wide. Your mercy is so great. You've spoken about the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ so clearly 750 years before he came. It's astounding how prescient Isaiah was when he wrote these words. It was your spirit. It was the spirit of Christ that was in him long before Christ walked this earth. And so we should expect there to be so much foreshadowing. Lord, I pray that if there be any in here who are trusting in their own light, leaning on their own ways, I pray that they would find you to be a reliable, trustworthy God who saves and redeems and restores. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.